new studio. Good day, sir. Studio. Very much under construction. <laughs> At the moment, super ghetto. Yeah, but it's a milestone. <laughs> it's our first time recording together ever. I know. Usually it, we're miles apart, Skyping and recording. Now we're all plugged into the same box. and Yep. Um, yeah. And this is the first time that we've recorded in person ever, like together. Did yeah. you already say that? Yeah. You're not even listening to me. I uh, know. That's because I'm thinking, man. I can't, I'm, I can't multitask. You're looking around. Haven't we dispelled multitasking as a myth? No one can multitask. It is a myth. And I'm not a good listener, so. <laughs> it's my ADD. I can't help it. <laughs> I didn't take my meds today. <laughs> Too much coffee. Uh, not enough coffee. <clears throat> One of the two. That man-sized beer earlier didn't help. Yeah, that was your fault. Yeah, I'll take credit for that. But uh, yeah, a lot of uh, cardboard boxes, trash, stuff taped to the walls. Yeah, it's pretty ghetto, but it's reminiscent of the way I started when I first started recording. I had that little makeshift box, and then I stuck some foam inside of it, stuck my mic inside of it, and then I'm basically like, like speaking into this cave of foam is how I started. <laughs> yeah. And that helps a little bit, but once we get this room finished, I think it'll be, we'll have some, we'll have some nice acoustics yeah. in here. Yeah. We've got some sound panels on order to help dampen the sound and hopefully be nice looking that we can sit here and look at them while we're doing that. You can sit here and admire the rectangular I admire panels. Them. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to paint some art onto them. Well, people do that. In fact, the company that's building these panels you can get, um, they have a whole series of like art and you can even provide your own art oh. and they print it. And on the material that the, the panel gets wrapped with mm -hmm. in a way that, or some, some kind of printing process that, um, doesn't block the, the, the sound. Absorption. Yeah, exactly. It just happened to be really, really expensive. Oh yeah. But, Everything is. But a lot of people will do that for like, if they have a, a room in their house, that's like a hardwood floor and almost all hard surfaces, people will buy these acoustic panels. And just have their art printed on them. And it looks like you can't tell they're acoustic panels. You, you would never think that. Anywho. <laughs> uh, so what's in the, uh, in the, what's in the you know, happening in the exciting world of Salesforce slash technology slash any crap we want to talk about? I have no idea. You're carrying this show today. All right, folks. Well, thank, all, thanks for tuning I'm in. I'm all burnt out from last week because I had to carry it last week. <laughs> oh, did you really? <laughs> um, okay. We can talk about Will. I am. Oh, really? Yeah. What's it's up always with him? Fun, it's always fun to talk about him. Mm. He, he's he's so out there. He's in the know. But he was on Gizmodo, or at least uh, they published an article about some things he said. Um, I'll read the headline because the headline's what grabbed me. It says, Will I Am really wants you to stop and think before you 3D print a human. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. That just shows you his grasp on technology. Yeah, so here's some direct quotes from him. Eventually, 3D printing will print people, said Will I Am. I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm just saying what's fact-based on plausible growth and technology. So it, technically, there has been some studies and some things going on in the medical community to actually print um, tissue, 3D print tissue. So they'll build a 3D print, you know, organs for, you know, transplant and all those kind of things. Are they 3D printing or like growing them, synthesizing them? Um, they're 3D printing them from what I understand. 
Um, I saw a new show where they showed it happening and I'm, it's some kind of layer of cells that they're printing to organize them. And then they're somehow merging together. It, it's all, you know, over my head, but it is something they're working on. It is, some, it is something that is plausible. I mean, I have heard of them. I, I think what I had read was that they were, um, I think taking stem cells and they were able to actually grow entire organs I've from seen stem that. cells. Yeah, I've seen that, but I think this was a little bit different where they're actually printing these mm-hmm. things. Um, so that's interesting. But some more quotes from him is if you think you can print a, or some more quotes from him, let me start from there. It says, if you can print a liver or a kidney, God dang it, you're going to be able to print a whole freaking person. Now we're getting to a whole new territory. Moses comes down with to the Ten Commandments and says, thou shalt not. He didn't say X about 3D printing or X, I'm self-censoring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's no law against 3D printing, so... You know, we just got to make sure that we think it through next well, you know, before we do it. If Will I Am is really sitting around on his couch worrying about this, he needs to lay off whatever, whatever it is he's smoking. Cause <laughs> <laughs> uh, but what is a person? What is intelligence? Um, you know, we've got we've got the Avengers hey. Ultron movie coming out soon. You know, the, the artificial intelligence that we that uh, whoever I guess Tony Stark in this version made him. And um, yeah. So that's technically a artificial 3D yeah. human created. I think Wilhelm's actually afraid we're going to 3D print actual living, breathing human beings. I think he's he's been he was sitting there. He he might have been had a little something going on, and he he saw the new Avengers trailer and thought, you know, hey, we're creating humans. I bet we're going to 3D print them and and make our own our own demise. Hey, how's his watch doing? Didn't he create a watch? <sighs> He did. Why are you so gloom about this? Oh, because I, I, I wanted to be ready to, cause this article actually mentioned that and I want to find it where he, where he said it. Um, this is a Gizmodo article it was written by Kate Nibbs. Sorry. So I'm not where she said this. Uh, let's see. Oh, okay. Yes. Will I am pop star once in future hologram Intel employee, hyperlink pioneer purveyor of terrible wearables, chief creative officer of a 3d printing company, is now also bombastic soothsayer of the comic of the coming 3D printed human anarchy. Uh, wait a minute. How is he a hyperlink inventor? Pioneer. I or have, pioneer. I have no idea. He pioneered the hyperlink? That's that's what I'm reading this from from what she wrote. And I this, have no this idea whole what time that I was giving credit to Tim Berners Lee. <laughs> Sir <laughs> Sir Lee. I'm assuming, I'm assuming that's some kind of <laughs> other technology that isn't it's not technically the hyperlink you know, hyperlink that we yeah. all know and love. I've been crediting Sir uh, Tim Berners Lee instead of I, sh- I should have been uh, Crediting uh, Sir William. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, he's a, he's the best bud of, of Mark Benioff. I wonder if they sit around and, and just just wax on the future of technology and talk about 3D humans. And, That's only for Dreamforce. Yeah. So did his watch fail? I, what did she say about the watch? It was a failure or something? Just purveyor of terrible wearables. Terrible. So I guess, I guess okay. she doesn't have very much confidence in it. I could link to it and read it, but I, I didn't. Uh, you have little faith. Yeah, um, so that article that she references, the title of it is William Pulse Smartwatch. So bad, I'm actually kind of impressed. <laughs> it's it's like I guess the watch is akin to those movies that are so bad you enjoy watching them just just for the comedic factor because you know they were taking themselves so seriously and they just made such a bad movie, but it just comes out funny and entertaining. You end up with a cult following out of it. Well, so, since we're talking about watches, did you see that uh, Salesforce got a mention? By Tim Cook. 
No. Yeah. So, um, is it because they have Salesforce on the watch or something? Yeah, of course. You yeah. know, Salesforce is gonna. I mean, Salesforce is all about the wearables now. Yeah, they're gonna have an app on don't there. They, and don't they have something that they call Salesforce Wear? I'll bet you a thousand bucks. I'll shake on it right now. That Benioff walks down the stage and flashes his iWatch to the crowd. Oh yeah, at Dreamforce this year. And you mean Apple Watch? His Get iWatch. Is it an Apple Watch? It's Apple Watch. It's not iWatch. But I'm always going to refer to it as an iWatch. You'll always sound like an idiot then. <laughs> no, I'm going I'm to sound like the in-the-know underground people who uh, call okay. it what it is. <clears throat> you know, to me, you're going to sound like people who always did it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so in addition to discussing the international Apple Watch launch and accessibility efforts at a briefing in Germany, Apple CEO Tim Cook teased a whole ton of announcements coming shortly about the about all of the apps coming for the Apple Watch. Um, let's see, where was the Salesforce part? Uh, Cook hinted that Apple is working on getting the Apple Watch into the enterprise. We all know that Salesforce is an enterprise platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, he noted that Salesforce.com is developing software for the Apple Watch. Salesforce.com has been a longtime partner in the enterprise with Apple, developing early applications for both the iPhone and iPad. Really? Early applications? I didn't see them. Well, they did have before Salesforce One. There was the Salesforce Mobile. That yeah. was that was. Um, but they've never done. Well, I don't know about the new the new thing, the, the the data thing, the wave thing. But like Salesforce One and whatever was its predecessor. Those are just uh, those aren't even native apps. <laughs> well, they weren't even useful apps to, at that. I, I mean, they know. were very basic. You can run your business from them, man. If you were using, you know, standard objects, <laughs> you couldn't use any visual force or anything on it. So you're basically whatever was there. Uh, I mean, if running your business consists of having phone calls and checking an email here or there and looking up, a, looking up someone's co- contact's phone number, then sure. Well, that's what a CRM is. That's true. Um, yeah. So uh, did they, did they happen to mention that, that the app store was given to them by Benioff? Did they bring that up again? Cause they don't mention that enough anywhere. That Benioff created the the idea of a of a app store. Is that what you're talking about? I don't think you. No, that's not what they're saying. They're saying, <laughs> so, but he he had he had the rights to the name, the URL or whatever, and he gave it to Apple. App you know store? that story? Yes, the App Store. No. Yes. But they trademarked App Store. Apple, yes. Or Salesforce. Salesforce did? owned App Store, and he gave it to at the time Steve Jobs, who was creating the App Store for the iPhone. They should have kept App Store and given them and given Apple App Exchange. App Exchange is kind of a mouthful. App Store clearly is a winner. Well, that's why he gave it to Apple. <laughs> In the spirit of donating, he donated the better name to Apple. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it was a donation, but either way, he said, "Okay, you can have it." <laughs> okay. Um. So I have some uh, probably boring stock stuff, but funny. Boring but funny. That yeah. that's 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 a bit contradictory. Doesn't make sense. No. <clears throat> it's like the same but different. So there's there's not been okay. So after Salesforce, we talked about this on our last recording. They had just released their quarterly results, and as usual, there's there's a lot to unpack from Salesforce's the the what do they call it? the conference call? I guess the the analyst conference call they gave when they released their quarterly results, and also just the, the results themselves, the document. <clears throat> But what's interesting is again, like their their sales and marketing numbers, their, their M and S, like marketing sales costs, and and they just that they're 
increasing as fast as they are. So they're still at like 50% of revenues. Um, and like, and it's, it's staying so st- like stay, you know, consistently at 50% of revenues. But here's what's interesting. Just, just looking at the sheer size of these numbers. So like, as an example, like 2010, they spent $600 million on sales and marketing, which seems like a lot, right? It's a big number. But 2011, $792 million. 2012, $1.2 billion. 2013, $1.6 billion. 2014, $2.1 billion. And 2015, which just ended for them, $2.8 billion on sales and marketing. I'm not surprised. I mean, is this company really spending $2.8 billion on marketing and sales costs every year? I'd imagine so. And they, they're, they, uh, they're, not if, even, they're not even a $6 billion company. That was $2.8 billion out of $5.3 billion in sales. Well, they, have, they have the Dreamforce event. They have all the events that they're doing internationally. They have you know, all the user groups and everything else. That's all got to add up. It just seems unrealistic. And that's that the, the whole it seems unsustainable. It, exactly. Thank you. That's a better word. And yeah, and both, I think they're both good words. I mean, it, it's 50% of sales are, you know, your sales and marketing being 50% of revenue. That's the, that's the type of percentage you would see on like a, a small startup company that has not very much revenue. You know, they're, they're in full on investment mode, right? They've, they've raised money, whatever. And they're going to be, they're, they're, they're in ramp up mode, but Salesforce, you know, they've, they've been public for 10 years. And now they're a $6 billion company and they're still spending 50% of their revenues on sales and marketing. They got to keep that, that growth going. And, and, and the argument is that, you know, at least the investors who are, who are, you know, who own Salesforce is that, well, at some point they'll, you know, they'll hit leverage is what they, what the, the word I hear them say, which is, which basically means that at some point they won't have to, you know, they'll hit some kind of economies of scale or they'll have enough just inertia in the marketplace that they're not having to spend. Because right now, this is another interesting metric. Um, the amount of money they spend in a year of sales and marketing is worth 200% of the revenue that that generated. Meaning that, uh, so if they spent $2.8 billion last year in sales and marketing, that would result in what is that? Five point? No, I'm sorry. It result in less than that. So, um, one like one and a half, not even one and a half billion dollars of revenue over the next two years. It the only thing that makes it work that makes them keeps them from losing any either more money is a lot of those are three year contracts. So it's only the in the third year that they've paid back that sales and marketing cost. That's it. That's because that, so that brings up another number that people talk about, which is like the customer acquisition cost. Mm-hmm. Like to me, that means their customer acquisition cost is gigantic. If it costs you two years of revenue from a customer just to pay back the cost of getting that customer, then that's a huge problem. Yeah. Is is that their goal though with with the marketing budget? Is it, is it all geared towards new acquisitions, or is it is it geared towards market awareness or just being out there? In front of everybody, it's, it's everything. I mean, that's that's all sales and marketing costs. And who knows what Salesforce is rolling into that sales for, sales and marketing cost? I mean, they could be do, doing something like that, that, I'm sure the Metallica party got made in there. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but um, it could be one of those things where, like, hey, um, you know, uh, you buy a hundred seats, and we'll 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 throw in another twenty seats. Right. So really, we're selling you hundred twenty seats. 
and we're going to book the revenue for that 120 seats, but we're going to, we're going to take the money from 20 seats and subtract it as a sales and marketing cost. We're going to, we're going to, it's just accounting gimmicks in order to keep, because you want the revenue for 120 seats, even though they're not buying 120 seats. Right. Assuming that's what they're doing. So you book 120 seats worth of revenue and then you add an, an entry for 20 seats worth of whatever that value is monetarily uh, in, in I'm assuming that, cost. that those marketing th- numbers aren't broken down that way though. I don't think they are, but it would be really interesting to see that. Yeah. Um, okay. So another interesting thing is selling costs related to net new revenues. That's what we were just talking about. I'm just going through my notes here. It's okay. So yeah. So selling costs are stable at, a, at around 200% of net new revenues. Um, so if selling costs only applied to new revenues, it would almost be like Salesforce spent 24 months of gross revenues from a contract just to be able to sign the contract. That's just another way of saying the same thing. Um, Salesforce's contracts generally run like 12 to 36 months. You know, the minimum, I think they all sign is a one year, but they, they really want to sell you a three-year contract. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so given that they do have a lot of 12 and 24-month contracts, though, those are those are losses. I mean, they may break even at the end of a twenty-four month contract. What are those numbers coming from, though? I mean, it could be that they were on a twelve professional, you know, twelve month contract for professional. Whenever they upgrade to say enterprise, is that counted as a loss of the twelve and a gain of a of a new oh, license? I have no idea. Yeah, it's hard to say. I see that happening a lot. I see a lot of people starting out with professional, upgrading to enterprise to be able to get a lot of the new features. Um, and then I don't see a lot of people jumping ship right now. I don't see a lot of people saying, hey, we're transitioning off Salesforce. So I don't think they're, I, I don't think they're having to aggressively manage or discount, heavily discount existing customers to keep them. Mm. Yeah, I don't know, like retention? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's a good, I don't think they break that out either. I'm sure they don't. Um, let's see. The other interesting thing that people are talking about is just so one thing that Salesforce likes to point to now because since they can't point to any profit is their deferred revenues um, and how their deferred revenues are up 36%. So, um, you know, so what they call billings, it, it's billings is revenue plus their change in deferred revenue. Um, so it's a metric that's they usually use on like SaaS businesses to try to judge SaaS businesses because We've talked about this before. They're they're a different type of business subscription model. It's you have to measure them completely differently, um, but mainly because most of the revenue is, is not recognized up front. I mean, you can book it as revenue, um, but you can't recognize that. You can only recognize that revenue like basically a month at a time. Mm-hmm. So let's say you sign a twelve year deal, customer pays you. I'm not sorry, twelve year twelve month deal, customer pays you up front for the full twelve months, but you can only recognize that revenue basically one month at a time, or maybe right. it's one quarter, or whatever. But the logic for the deferred for the deferred revenue is it it gives us you know like a look into how revenue is going to perform later on because it's deferred revenue so it almost gives you a, a viewpoint to what future revenues are going to be. Um, another way to think about it is deferred revenue gives you a look at how orders are doing today, like bookings, I guess, even if they're not they haven't translated into revenues yet. So actually, what I said earlier, like it's it's really not revenue. They don't they can't call it revenue. It's bookings. You know, they may have a lot of bookings, but they can't recognize that those bookings values you know, until until they're actually delivering. And right. the the revenue has to be amortized along with the with the cost. Um so um so that's the purpose of deferred revenues. Um but 
like 95% of Salesforce's deferred revenues, that, at least in the according to this report, are to be recognized within the t- next 12 months. So they're really current. There's like, I guess there's current deferred revenues and future deferred revenues. So most of theirs are current. They're going to be here within the next 12 months. And, and so, so Salesforce has guided how their revenues will do over the next 12 months. So it's like between 6.4 and 6.5 billion. But they're saying the revenues... Uh, okay, they're, so they're saying deferred revenues were up 32%, and they were really talking about that. You know, um, and the reason they talk about stuff like that is just because you know, they want to talk about all the positive stuff to help their stock price. But, so for 99% of those deferred revenues there are within the d- next 12 months, that growth rate was just 20, like 20%. So it, it really doesn't make much sense. I mean, it doesn't matter if, 30, if, if deferred revenues are up 32%, if 99% of them are just going to be current or are current deferred revenues, and there's really just a growth rate of 21%. So it's really, it's just numbers. They, they came up with like their own metric to, to come up with this 32% number instead of a 21% number because 32% is a bigger number, right? It's a better number. Right. And since they can't say that they're growing at 30% a year anymore, hey, let's come up with a new metric, which is 32%. It's just, it's ridiculous. Like I listened to some of these stock analysts try to make sense of, of what they're doing. And it's just, I don't know, it's like Salesforce is such a unique um, company in the way they manage the investor community. Like they're pulling tricks, especially, you know, with everything's non-GAAP and now deferred revenues and all this stuff. And and deferred revenues are actually mainly current to current deferred revenues. It's just like they're playing all these weird tricks and, and you have to read between the lines. Like if, if you just listen to what they're saying, it all sounds like, everything's hunky dory and it's all, everything's growing as fast as it's always been growing. And, you know, revenues are more complex than what you think. It's nuanced. You, you, you can't, you couldn't possibly understand, you know, our nuanced revenues because it's a different model. It's SAS and don't worry about gap. And, you know, don't, don't worry about our stock-based compensation. The fact that we're, you know, actually losing $500 million a year or whatever it is, you know, the fact that we're giving away $580 million in stock-based companies. Don't worry about any of that. It doesn't matter anymore. It's a new model. <laughs> but it's kind of working. And the question is like, you know, some people think that, I mean, and Salesforce is like for the, gosh, for I think years now, it's been like one of the top shorted stocks. Like pe- people think it's just, you know, a bubble. that's going to about, you know, mm-hmm. at any time it's going to pop. But it, it does seem that way. I mean, do, do you think... <clears throat> Do you think eventually, I mean, because we, we talked about them having a lower expectations this year for growth and, and all those kind of things. So are they, are they just being cautious or, they, or they, are they actually thinking they're saying something coming? Is Salesforce being cautious? Mm-hmm. Or, I don't know. I don't think they're being cautious. I, I think they're playing fast and loose here hmm. with the numbers. I mean, I think they're trying to come up with different metrics to, ju- to measure them by because by traditional standards, they don't look so good. But they, but I mean, I, their the argument that they are on a unique model is true. No, it is. It is, and the and the fact that they have deferred or sorry, um, yeah, deferred revenue, and they are having a battle against analysts who may want to put them into that traditional model and 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 then judge their stock based on that model. I don't. I don't know. I mean, I think you need professional analysts. They understand all these things, like. I would like to think so, but every every year we come across, you know, companies that are doing really great, doing really good things. They have positive growth in, in very specific areas and, and maybe not in other areas, yet the analyst community will still find something that they want to pick apart. 
Apple's a good example of that. Every year they don't announce something brand new and shiny or that's extremely revolutionary as the iPhone. They, they want to downgrade it. They want to say, oh, they're, they're losing their steam. They're not as innovative as they used to be. They're not as good as they used to be, yet they're still, they still have a ton of money in the bank. They're still very innovative. They still have a strong community of, of customers. Yet whenever they do their reports and their analysis, they drop the stock a little bit. Yeah, although Apple's been riding high. Yeah. Well, I mean, they've got an event coming. We'll see what happens with that. Anyway, so it looks like, I'm just looking at these numbers again, um, deferred revenues as a as a percentage of revenue are at their highest, were at their highest point in their fiscal year 2015 as they'd ever been. 50.6% were deferred revenues. Oh, and another trick they've been doing apparently is, uh, what was it, like 2011, 2012, they kind of got spanked by the, by the stock market because their, what was it? Defer, I think it was their deferred revenues kind of drop, started dropping a little bit. And so what they did was they, they started selling less 12-month contracts and they really started pushing probably 36-month, I know longer contracts, I don't know specifically what, I'm, I would imagine 36-month contracts. Now it's hard to get Salesforce to agree to anything less than, I mean, they really would like to get a 36-month contract. Well, that makes sense. I mean, the, the their business is changing. They're targeting more enterprise customers and they're going to want longer contracts. But that's a lot that. of deferred, if you sign a 36-month contract, that's a lot of deferred revenue. Right? And, that, and that's up. the nature of subscription-based models. It is, but that's how they, that's how they got their deferred revenue numbers back up. They just, it, it, you know, it's, it's not, a, it's not a sign that you are making more money or that you've right. got a lot more revenue. It's just, you're just, you're just reporting on future revenues. Right. It, 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 I guess on paper, it probably is a trick, but I can see the, the logic behind it. I mean, I, I can see how, you know, having, having to demonstrate that, yes, you know, our numbers are being pushed more to these deferred accounts that are that are long longer term contracts. So you have to take that into account. And I can see them wanting to make sure that the community overall and especially investors, potential investors, are aware of that. You know, it's it's not it's not a I, you know, built 10 units and shit and shipped and sold all 10 units, you know, and I now I can recognize all that revenue. I mean, you do have to take into account the the model itself. Yeah. So here's here's an example. Okay, say an average monthly contract is $10,000. So if Salesforce sells 10 contracts to a, to a company for a one-year deal, they'd invoice $120,000 and recognize only $10,000 per month over the next 12 months. So deferred revenue is basically $110,000 after the first month. Now they move on to company B and sell them the exact same deal, but it's a 24-month contract. They invoice for $240,000 and recognize $10,000 in the first month. So deferred revenue jumps to $230,000, right? And it's like, you know, OMG, they are so amazing. Their deferred revenue is growing. <laughs> you know, deferred revenue is up 100%. <laughs> Woo! Hey, well, maybe some investors, that's what they look for, and that's what they want to hear. And they are jumping up and down. It's a matter of knowing your audience, your target audience. Yeah, exactly. How about that? Right. We are so excited. See, Mark's excited. I know. Exactly. His deferred revenues are up. <laughs> um, let's see. <laughs> yeah, I got a bunch of other notes, but these are probably boring. Um, this, I say, here's one. So, uh, so, non, so non-cloud space. So Oracle and SAP have sales and marketing expenses of you know, about 20% to, and 24% um, respectively. So, yeah. So it makes you wonder why Salesforce has to spend you know, an additional... 30 to 35% of revenue of, uh, you know, on sales and marketing. 
See, I, and here, you know, that's either a lot, whole lot of hookers and blow or, <laughs> <laughs> or steaks and booze or whatever, you know. Well, see, you say it like why they have to. And I, I wonder if, if, or, or I wonder on. if it's more of a, they want to spend that much. You know, they want to be out there. They want to be, you know, they're, they're celebrities. But at what cost? I mean, two billions at the, at the cost of your company not being profitable in ten, as it's 10 years of public said company. It and we know it, you know, their, their goal is not profitability. Benioff's goal is not profitability. Well, yeah, because they're what they're a story stock. Mm-hmm. Right. They're selling their story. Right. Not, don't don't you worry about those, you know, petty little metrics. Listen to our story. Uh, keep taking my words and making them something negative. <laughs> of course, it probably is also, I, I think it's got to be expensive to have Metallica on retainer for all your events, right? <laughs> well, they, they get a, they get a group discount if their volume discount. I, guess so. I don't know if Lars would be into the volume discount though. You know, he was, uh, he remember how uh, anti Napster and MP3 oh, yeah. he was forever. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> he's not, he's not all about, uh, uh, reducing his own personal revenues. Yep. <laughs> Well, I think it all at least points to the fact that Salesforce is okay. They're not going away anytime soon. If they're still able to draw positive, a positive story, even if the numbers are coming from somewhere else, that's still got to show something. You know, they're still doing something. So Salesforce donates a lot to charities, right? Especially in the Bay Area, don't they? Or do you, do you, yeah, believe, they, that, they, do you they, believe that they do? They do have, they do do a significant amount of charity and they also do a significant amount of um, uh, investment into startups and things. That's true. They have a Salesforce Ventures that they, yep. yeah, but they, they, they invest a lot. I mean, they, they contribute a lot to charities. They donate a lot to charity, right? Yes. Yeah. So why, why would any company donate to charity if they themselves are having financial problems? Uh, one, one, one. So you're, you're, yeah, you're, I mean, cause I, I if mean, you're, one, if one, you're, one doesn't say if you're doing okay, then donate. It says, you know, whatever 1% of your profitability or whatever the word of the day is for that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, it's still 1%. So if you make a, a penny, it's, it's, one, it's 1%, 1%, per, 1% of, of the paper that you buy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> for every 100 there, sheets. There's always something to give. <laughs> uh, but if you don't have anything to give, right? if you're, if you're giving it at the expense of your, of your shareholders, oh, they're, wait, they're not shareholders anymore. They're stakeholders, oh. right? Yeah. So, so that's the answer. Yeah. That's how they can give money away that's not theirs because we're not, we don't have shareholders anymore that we have to worry about. Well, we're, sta- again, we're all stakeholders in this community. It's all part of the story, though. It's all part of, of the, the image of, of what Salesforce is. And that is that they, they're a very social and charitable company. Okay. So I have a final point here, which is just like a, a discussion point for us. So, so Salesforce gets compared a lot to Amazon because Amazon's in the service business with probably deferred revenues. <clears throat> um, and they, and Amazon famously like doesn't make money. Right? right. So what's the difference in your mind in, you know, business model or sustainability or, or potential for, you know, relatively near term growth. What's the difference between Amazon and Salesforce? There probably isn't. I mean, I, I, I think their models are very similar. Really? In terms of how they make money, in terms of the type of services they provide, um, probably in the way they market those services as well. Okay. Um, you think Salesforce has more solid products than Amazon does? And I'm talking about AWS, really, I think. 
Well, I mean, they, they provide two different services. I think their models are, are similar enough that you can make those types of comparisons, but I don't think they're selling the same thing. No, because Amazon's really more infrastructure as a service, right? Right. And Salesforce is... They have a different audience. They have a similar model. I mean, it's just like Apple and your grocery store have a similar model because they all have products and they're all selling directly to consumers. Right. Um, you know, you can make somewhat of a comparison there. And I think the same reason you can do that with, with Amazon and... I'm sorry, with yeah, with Amazon and Salesforce. But, you know, trying to compare selling an Apple with compa- comparing selling a... a um, an iPhone, you know, that's, that's, that's a little more difficult. Um, okay. So, so you don't, you don't think Salesforce necessarily has more solid products than Amazon does? I don't think it's, I don't think it's, it's a comparison you can make because they who, sell two different things. Who has stickier products? Stickier products. That's tough because of my perspective, I think. Hmm. To me, Salesforce definitely has stickier products. Really? Yeah. I mean, a company that signs on with Salesforce and, you know, builds their whole business around it. Whereas, I mean, the whole point of something like AWS is, I mean, there are proprietary APIs you can tap into it, but, in, but the way you build your core application, you can just move them from one cloud to another. And you could move them to a private cloud. True. But I think, you know, my perspective is that the Amazon tools are much more flexible, much more open than, say, Salesforce, which is much more pro- proprietary. and um with the way they manage their infrastructure, it's far more restrictive in terms of the types of things you can do. So that was one of my main thoughts also is that Salesforce makes proprietary software. Right. Amazon arguably does not. Right. Uh, so from my perspective, I would think that Amazon has, has a stickier product because if I was developing a system and needed a place to host it, I don't necessarily think Salesforce would be where I would go unless it was a Salesforce-specific product, meaning my audience, my users were going to be on Salesforce. Right. Well, that's true. But think, think, of, think of the typical, you know, prototypical quintessential Salesforce customer versus Amazon's customer. You know, an Amazon customer is going to, you know, build and host some application and they're going to host it on Amazon. Mm-hmm. A Salesforce customer is going to sign up with Salesforce and build their, all their processes around Salesforce and, you know, their, their web to lead forms, their, commu- their community, they're going to run, you know, custom business processes in Salesforce, and it's all proprietary, right? Mm-hmm. That code can't go anywhere. So to me, the fact that Salesforce is proprietary, it makes it the switching costs to switch away from Salesforce are much higher than Amazon. Yeah, but I have a hard time believing anything is as portable as anyone says it is. You know, when you write something and, and even if you do it on Amazon, you're going to consume their APIs. You're going to leverage whatever services they have because it's going to make it easier and quicker to develop or what develop, whether that's, you know, some kind of connector they provide for a database or some kind of memory management system or, or garbage collection or whichever, you're going to leverage it, which means you're going to have some, some level of lock-in unless you have all the time and all the money in the world to sit there and build everything from scratch. So I think at the, like at the, or, what they call like the orchestration layer, that is all, that's communicating to Amazon AP, you know, AWS APIs, you know, fire up, you know, five instances of this application, you know, um, ch- change the routing, you know, or the, the reverse proxy, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's all right. Amazon APIs. But the core application itself, that's all completely, you know, has no visibility to the Amazon APIs. So, yeah, I mean, the orchestration stuff, that would, that's going to change from cloud. Unless you do something like um, Cloud Foundry, Right. Is that, is that, or like OpenStack or Cloud Foundry, actually. 
I mean, those are all about your, you can do all your orchestration in, in this API that's, a, that's portable. You can run, you can run OpenStack, I think, on Amazon or mm-hmm. Rackspace or in a private cloud so that it's all portable. And, then, and that's, I mean, I know you're skeptical of that. And I think for a good reason, because in the, in the past, we've been, we've been kind of lied to about portability. Yeah. But this is serious. I mean, it's, I, think it's, I think it's pretty real. Well, I mean, I, I definitely think portability is something to strive for, and I still continue to strive for some sense of portability or at least create my levels of abstraction because I know something's at least going to change considerably at one level or another. So, I mean, it's, I, I think it's good to think that way and it's good to consider that. But I think the reality is no one on a dime just sits there and decides, hey, we were on Amazon last year. Let's jump over to Cloud Foundry because they're offering a discount this year. Next year, we'll switch back when they're, when they're offering a discount. I mean, it just it's not something that happens quickly and often. No, because it's still, it's still expensive to switch. It's just Which means by the time you're ready to switch, you're probably ready to make some significant changes in your architecture, which means you're rewriting stuff anyways. Yeah, so so you're saying you think you think Amazon's still pretty sticky, just not because it's Amazon's fault, just because no matter what you do, it's still, it's going to be hard to switch, right? Yeah. yeah, maybe so. I still think that I think Salesforce is really sticky. I think one reason though that you got to give them credit that Salesforce is sticky is because um people like it. I mean, it's not very often that I hear of. Uh, a Salesforce customer that's you know wanting to get off the system. It happens. Right. I've done migrations off of Salesforce, mm-hmm. but it's just rare. Yeah, no, I, I think I mean, where do you, where do you like want to go to? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and and I think the the platform itself offers enough tools that you can explore. You know, some of those other ideas. You can try to move in a lot more processes into it, and you know, create that level of customization. It can be painful depending on you know how complex that that particular solution is. Um, but the option is there at least. Yeah. And the, I think the more of Salesforce you're using, the harder it is to switch. Like if you're just using CRM, yeah. that's, that's easy to switch. Yeah. I mean, unless you've done a lot of, you know, process customization and tons of, you know, visual force or whatever, that's going to have to be rebuilt. I mean, anything you do in visual force apex, that's all proprietary. That's going nowhere. Yeah. That's just a sunk cost. I, th- I think Salesforce as a whole has really great tools and a great product, but it's not, it's not always the most user-friendly and it's not always the most efficient in managing records or even, even dealing with certain use cases um, that require a certain level of productivity, being able to see certain amounts of information. I mean, you have things like the console view, but even that's kind of crusty, um, which means you're going to do a lot of custom development to try to meet that need. Um, I, th- I think that's kind of a failing of it, but overall as a system, overall as, as the ability to kind of create and customize and, do workflows and things like that. It's still, it's still really great. Yeah, and, I, and like I've been saying, I mean, I think the value nowadays of Salesforce is is not that any one of these parts of it are best in breed. Because I think there's really, I think there's slicker CRMs. I think there's things that beat the crap out of Chatter. Um, you know, I don't know about service. Maybe there's better service things. Maybe there's not. I don't know. Um, you know, will Wave be, you know, so much better than Tableau and and uh, any of these other systems. I don't know. I don't know. I, but my guess is probably not. I mean, Wave is new and these other guys have a big head start. But the benefit of Wave will be it's just it's going to be native to Salesforce, right? right? So if you're already in Salesforce and using it for your support and your service and your port and your community and your website, it's, it's already all there. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be cheap, even, even for that platform for you, what it is. That's probably cheaper just to pay that 
because overall that's going to be cheaper than you going and finding some other solution and then integrate them and get them communicating and hire someone to manage it. high price consultants and everything yep. else. Right. Um, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think wave will succeed by default um, because it's connected to Salesforce. And because I've already seen customers try to manage and consume a lot of the reporting needs from Salesforce. Um, done, done a lot of just integrations where things get migrated over for the simple purpose of, of reporting. Oh, like they want to cut crystal reports up to it or something. Yeah. 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 Does that still exist? Crystal reports? Mm-hmm. Does it really? Yeah. Who owns that now? Is it, it used to be Seagate. Do they sell it to someone? Uh, is it business objects now? Oh, yeah, right. Business yeah. objects. Yeah. Yep. Yep. All right, cool. So what else? Do you have any other topics? No, this is this is <clears throat> the Jeremy Ross show oh. today. So uh, Mark says that uh, working at Oracle gave him a really empty feeling because they didn't give enough back. So actually, this this is references uh, how that that Adam Lashinsky interview talking about philanthropy. He said we had this really great experience, but over and over again, I would just get this really empty feeling at Oracle. We'd have these great products, we'd close all these deals, our stock was rocketing, everybody's making money, but I was kind of like, I think a company can be more than this. <laughs> That's not uh, new. I mean, we just spent the first half of our show talking about that. The the. Mark's focus is not profitability. It's going to be that. It's going to be to tell that story. It's going to. It's going to be a company that is. Again, I'll use the same word: social and charitable, because yeah. I think that that best describes it. So then he says, uh, "And I and I want a better kind of vibration in this company. I want a. <laughs> <laughs> he wants that good vibration. Oh yeah. <laughs> I can't sing those high notes like they can that song. I, I want a better energy. Uh, he's very. Uh, He's very in touch with his, his uh, energy and his like yoga and uh, what's the, you know, his, his Fitbit tracking. Yeah, well, I guess <laughs> I want to have a feeling that when I walk into this company, I want everyone to go, wow, there's unbelievable energy here. There's a great feeling in this company. And I'm like, why? <laughs> but who doesn't, who doesn't want to be able to go to work and, and feel like the things they do matter? I don't know. I mean, I guess it depends on where, what you look for to, f- to fulfill what your, 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 your personal needs. I mean, I, th- I think Salesforce is very tied into Benioff, how Benioff sees himself. I think, I think it's, it's, I don't want to use the word ego, but I'm going to use it. I think it's, it's a representation of his ego, the company itself. Yeah. Well, he is known as like having one of the biggest egos in Silicon Valley. Well, I don't even mean that in a negative connotation. I just mean that, you know, he sees Salesforce as himself. And so he wants people to view Salesforce like he wants to be viewed. So he has that tie. It's, it's not like just another company where I work. I am the CEO. Here's me and my personality. Here's the company and its personality. I think for him, they're both equal. They're both tied. They're the same. Yeah. And so when he sees the company and he sees Salesforce, he sees himself and he wants to, he wants people to see and view Salesforce as a very charitable, as a very, you know, generous organization. And I, I think there's, um, I think that's actually fairly smart because think of um, what we've seen in the past couple of years, how these people have been processed, protesting Google and, 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 um, and Salesforce, I think to some degree, because like rents in San Francisco are just still skyrocketing, skyrocketing. People can't afford to live there. Um, and you got companies like Salesforce that are bringing all these new employees in all the time, paying them, 
you know, higher salaries than, than people that are living in San Francisco make. They're, they're driving up demand of housing costs. Um, and it's pissing everyone off. Right. And so they, they've, you know, there's been these massive protests where they're, they, you know, like the Google bus that comes pick, picks everyone up. Like, you know, it gets, it's been getting like, um, they've been throwing eggs at it and whatever. Really? Protesting. Oh yeah. That's been, um, who was the guy that was the founder of dig? Um, young guy. He's, uh, uh-huh. I would have known Kevin someone. Yeah. Kevin Rose. Kevin Rose. I think so. But anyway, he got um he they followed them to his to his house. And I think he had to like call the cops to get them. I mean, I think he was afraid he was gonna get his house destroyed. Um they were protesting him because I don't know, I guess because he's a visible person in in, in San Francisco. Yeah. Well, but I mean- if you're if you're if you're perceived as being really charitable. And supporting the community and and improving the community and putting money back into the community, then that probably buys you some some goodwill, right? Yeah, I'm sure it does. I, I think so. I mean, I think it's a very practical thing to, to there's try to definitely, do. There's definitely not a negative to doing that, I don't think. <clears throat> I mean, even if anything, it still gets you a lot of, not that this is the reason they're doing it, but it does get you a fair amount of free publicity as well because people want to write. Absolutely. They want to write those good stories. They want to write how... This company went out and helped this, you know, school that was, you know, suffering and didn't have the right equipment to teach kids and things like that. And they came in and bought them all new computers and, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, people want to write those stories. And yeah. why not have your name attached to that? Why not? Why, did, why not have Salesforce attached to that rather than Mark Benioff? Well, I think you make sure that both of them <laughs> are attached. <laughs> Mark Benioff's company, Salesforce.com today. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Okay, let's see what else. Um, so from now on, at Salesforce, all all meeting, all important meetings, whatever that means, important meetings, must include at least thirty percent women. That's such an odd requirement. So Silicon Valley has a diversity problem. Uh, most of the people that work in the tech industry are white, are male and white. Um, the lack of women is even sadder when it comes to technical roles inside of companies. Um, Salesforce is taking unusual steps to change this inside the company. Uh, <laughs> I, don't think, I don't CEO think... Mark Benioff told Recode journalist Kara Swisher on stage at the Lesbians Who Tech Summit. <laughs> I, I saw that. I, or I heard about that event. Oh, where's my bell? <laughs> Ring a bell for me. <clears throat> um... <laughs> it's just more than oh wait it's more than just women leaning in which I don't even know what that means uh, uh, the, the lack of women in tech is, is a crisis of prioritization uh, sales, Benioff has a program inside the company called w- Women Surge <laughs> he's doing a he's doing a surge <laughs> uh, designed to identify executive potential women employees and mandate that they get included on all the important stuff going on so how does that work if you're, you know, you're having a meeting and you look around the table and you're like, oh, crap, we're all dudes. And you're like, what do you do? Pick out the office and say, hey, women. Anyway, we need some women in here. <laughs> <laughs> Why not just make sure that those women are, are in the right positions that can make decisions and host those meetings? What, I mean, yeah, it's, it's just quota fill at that point. I know. It's like, are they doing something wrong? Are women, I mean, is there some fundamental problem at Salesforce that women aren't being treated fairly? That they're, um, that they're not, you know, that they're not being given opportunities? Are they being... Um, what's the word like segregated out of opportunities for whatever reason? I can't see that they, being if true. 
I can't see that being the case, especially at a company like Salesforce. Are they not hiring enough women? Are they are they uh, discriminatory with their hiring practices? No, because they've always been very self-aware and conscious of that issue. I mean, the problem the problem is there's not enough women at Salesforce. Salesforce is like 70% men. So it's very likely that in a, a meeting, it's, it's going to be all men or main, or, or you know predominantly men. What are you supposed to do? Just... It's, it's, it's quota fill and it seems, it seems like it's, it's there purely for, for the image. It's an illusion. Well, all these tech companies are doing this now. They're, it's, and I agree. It's an illusion of, of inclusion. They, they, he, Benioff is heading off future criticism right now. He can point to all these programs he's putting in place. He can point to his women's surge. He should keep a binder full of women like Mitt Romney <laughs> did. <laughs> That's his problem. He needs a binder. He does. I have a hard time with with those type of things because it's so specific and it, and it, even though it's meant to kind of somewhat be inclusive, that means excluding others. That means possibly excluding other qualified people who should be in that meeting or even just bloating a meeting. And to top that all off, I don't even believe in meetings. Exactly. Like, (laughs) let's solve the right problem here, right? This is a non problem. Just just not have the meeting. Exactly. And it just smacks of like ends justify the means. Like, it doesn't matter how stupid it is. We'll keep up. We'll, keep, we'll make all the women wear pagers so that if we're low on women, what we have to do is page them and someone, and someone will show up so we can meet our quota. And as long as we meet that quota, do they have like a calendar that, that has like the resources and they drag the meetings exactly. in there? And drag they, some women. They add their meetings and then they have like this pool of women they can drag into it just hey, to make hey, sure. As long as the bar you, graph that shows the percentage. As long as you hit 30%. Oh, it can That's even have an matters. infographic with like a blue person for the male and a, and a yellow person and it's, it fills up like a gauge. Yeah, see, it's good stuff. So where are we at? Fifty-one minutes. I can keep going. It's but it's light. You want to wrap it up or? Uh, it's I, up to you. I got a few more topics. But yeah, let's do it. Okay. Um. So th- there's a new Salesforce tool that can help you get personal with one million people. <clears throat> do you believe that? It's called Chatter. No, it's um social new, networking. It's, it's some new marketing thing they have. Um, so Salesforce unveiled its latest solution today in the form of predictive decisions. That's what it's mm. called. That's proper cased predictive decisions. It lets marketers tailor content to each visitor based on data added in real time as they move through their customer journey. Oh, they've been stalking us. Yeah, where's my... Uh... Oh, here we go. We're all heading to creepy. We all know that. <laughs> uh, okay, so the new product will be available in May. Um this is interesting. In, in a briefing with, with reporters, Scott McCorkle, the CEO of Salesforce Marketing Cloud. Did you know that the Marketing Cloud had its own CEO? Uh, no, but I'm not surprised because every major app does. A lot of CEOs at Salesforce, apparently. Well, okay, maybe not CEO, but they definitely have product leads or managers or whatever they call them. So uh, Scott, Scott McCorkle says that the new product blends CRM and marketing data with contextual information in a way that turns customers from browsers into buyers. But it's basically just a way that like, based on real time streams of data about what your customers doing, like that show them just the perfect thing for them at the perfect time to increase, you know, conversion or to get them to do whatever you're trying to right. get them to do. And it is creepy. I mean, I, I told you just today that I reset all my browsers because I'd been looking for a desk recently, and now every advertisement on every site I go to mentions some kind of desk. Well, that's because they're in they're in like these ad slash data sharing networks, right? So even though the cookies technically aren't supposed to be able to cross boundaries, they so if they're all sharing the data, then even even if it's anonymous, 
it could be that's probably how they're getting away with it legally. It's probably anonymous, but they still know that whoever has this ridiculous UUID mm-hmm. is the is the guy that's been looking for desks. <clears throat> but yeah, so this is this new thing is all algorithm based, and what do algorithms need to function? What do they need to be fed? Data. Mm-hmm. So they've they've got to have all this data on you, which they're. It's it's the same thing. They're creating a network of that. Then, if enough customers are doing that and they're all sharing information, and they all know you're looking for that shiny new desk. Yeah, I mean, I guess this. I don't know this marketing stuff. It's it's all a necessary evil to me. I mean, I, I guess I get it. I'm just it's not interesting to me. It's you know if, if the, on one on one hand Benioff's trying to do all this good in the world, but then he's creating you know the most sinister marketing platform Creepy. you can you possibly imagine. Yeah. I mean, I guess they, I guess they, I guess they kind of balance each other out, right? Yeah, I mean, market marketing has. I have a love hating with it because I, you know, I understand the need of it. I understand the the need to kind of make sure your product is known and aware and and those kind of things. I just don't. I don't. I think there's a line that you shouldn't cross. And sometimes it, that line gets crossed, and it's extremely creepy to use Mark's words. But um. But yeah, I mean, I don't mind going to a site and seeing something that I like or something related to something I like because it could be something I do want to buy. Yeah, I mean, I and that's the argument. It's like these things can be beneficial for you. Like, yeah, you know, it maybe some someone will present the the right product to you at the right minute. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's the web is huge. The, the number of online stores is astronomical, and the number of products that are available out there are just are getting bigger, especially with, you know, we talked about this last time, you know, Kickstarter and people developing all these new technologies and things and putting them out there. You know, you never know. There's a product out there that you didn't know you need or one that could actually help in something you're doing that you, that you want to do. Yeah. Something to make your life a little bit easier. Okay. Um, let's got one last thing. Uh, let's see. This is interesting. Have you heard of a company called Pega Systems. <clears throat> no. Uh, for some reason, I wanted to say yes at first, but I don't think so. There's a company called Pegasus Systems that are, that's around here. Maybe. That's not who it is. Okay. I hadn't heard of them either. Pegasystems, which provides CRM sales and marketing applications, is taking on direct competitor Salesforce with a brand awareness campaign launching today called Pega Can. Can Salesforce? <laughs> oh. <laughs> I hope they didn't pay very much for that slogan. The campaign includes print and online ads and was created by T3 in Austin, Texas. Um, the campaign is to be said to be in the multi-millions of dollars. Okay, so the guy says, uh, now we're, we're at an inflection point with nearly $600 million in revenue. So what, that's they're maybe 10% of the size, a tenth of the size of Salesforce. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to build awareness and we decided it's time to tell our story more broadly. Uh, so Salesforce is a much larger competitor with revenue of $4 billion last year. Um, Pegasystems wants to highlight the market segmentation in the CRM space, as well as contrasting approaches to providing CRM solutions to companies of different sizes. Um, there are applications, including Salesforce, that we believe are well-suited for the lower end of the market. Uh, for, for more strategic applications, where flexibility and scale are critical, there's Pega. Interesting. Do they actually answer the question of whether or not Salesforce can or can't? I think he's, yeah, I think, I think the Im- implication is that Salesforce cannot. Salesforce, that's the but see, that's, that's a, that's a, a sleazy tactic. It's like, cause if you're going to do a comparison and say, you know, Salesforce does this and, but they don't do this feature that we offer, yeah. then that's a true comparison. It's a valid argument. But if you're just asking the question, 
and leaving it open, it's almost like saying, like you said, it, you make the assumption that they can't do that. Well, it, okay. It's like when you're watching TV and the, you know, I just went to the site. It says, I see the, the it says, <laughs> can Salesforce deliver this? And it has all their little Pega can items of things they can do. But it doesn't answer if Salesforce can or can't do that. It just has a question mark. No, it's like when you're watching TV in the in the like, evening. Can they? No, it's like when you're watching TV in the evening and the and the the teaser for the ten o'clock news comes on and the and the weatherman's like, "Will it snow ten inches by by morning? Stay tuned to find out." And of course, the answer is, "I don't know. It's not going to snow ten inches." <laughs> that was just a cheap teaser. But this isn't even a teaser. This doesn't even. It's not meant to be. It just says, "Here's a feature we can do." Can Salesforce do that? Do you want to take the time to go and figure out if they can, or you just want to just maybe he's asking because he genuinely doesn't genuinely doesn't know. Maybe <laughs> he's like someone. No, really, someone tell me. Well, my, can my competitor do this? Because I don't know. We we know <laughs> we can't get a login. <laughs> uh, okay, so last part here. This it says Salesforce has built an amazing business, but it is significantly different to provide CRM solutions for small and medium businesses and for global enterprises. We've been working exclusively with the enterprise space, and we think that we have a more robust offering to serve large global enterprises. This campaign creates the opportunity to have conversations around the very meaningful discussions enterprises are having today around the evolution of CRM and digital transformation. Oh, wow. This guy sounds like he's full of shit to me. That was buzz, buzzworthy. That's just <laughs> buzzword here, buzzword there. It sounds good. I, I want to check them out, though. There's some smoke and mirrors there Maybe going on. Maybe we can get some work in that space. <laughs> we want to target the small business, but we're really good at global enterprise, and that's our market, and it's contradictory in itself, too. Yeah, I don't know. I just thought that was interesting, and I'm going to have to check out Pegasystems. Are they, are they in Texas? Pegasystems. Um, oh, they're in Massachusetts. Wow. Um, offices throughout North America, Europe, and Asia. I mean, I would love for a strong Salesforce competitor to be out there. And I guess arguably we have things like, like, you know, Microsoft Dynamics and things like that. But. I think it's, I mean, if you, if you consider that Salesforce is a platform now, it is, it's, it's Microsoft, it's Oracle, yeah. it's SAP. It's this, is the big guys. I mean, it's yeah. kind of, it's enterprising. Yeah. I don't know that that getting your bullhorn out and trying to shout at the biggest guy and trying to trying to see if that'll up your market share is going to work, but I don't know. Maybe you know something I don't. <laughs> I don't know. He needs to get better coaching on his public relations yeah. talk, though, because that was pretty cheesy. And their uh, tagline was horrible. Pega can can Salesforce. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe he's trying to be the next Got Milk. Pega can. Oh man, my. Uh, Hang on. Pega. Oh, crap. <laughs> my stuff's not working. Can't do your echo. I've voice. messed up my settings. Yeah. Anyway. That's all I got. And to that, I say, good day, sir. Good day, sir. <laughs> Very good quarter. A stunning quarter. Congratulations, sir, on a great quarter. An unbelievable fiscal year. The stock's roaring way beyond everybody's expectation. Look at the deferred revenue number. So deferred revenue blew it out very, very big on Salesforce has become the fastest enterprise software company to hit the $5 billion revenue mark. The fastest to $5 billion. Next quarter, we're going to be the fastest to $6 billion. I think it'll be the fastest to hit $10 billion. It is absolutely my dream, and I'm dedicated to being the fastest to $10 billion. You'll be the fastest ever to get to $10 billion in sales. Absolutely momentous. Spectacular. It's unbelievable. 
fantastic, amazing, phenomenal, incredible, unbelievable story. Amazing, unbelievable, a beautiful system, phenomenal, unbelievable. Thanks, Jim. Great to see you.